Hey everybody, welcome to the Lundloop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, trading, and life. And where's the introduction? Where's the, um, is this the Lundloop? Where is that? And where is the introductory music, that canned royalty-free music that I had to buy? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I am mobile right now. I spent the last six hours seven hours at Disneyland. We're taking a little break back at the hotel before we go to dinner and do the nighttime uh, deal at Disneyland. And I am in the, uh, what do they call this? The business center. I'm at the business center of a hotel on my laptop holding the podcast microphone like Dean Martin. So if the, if the sound is odd, I apologize. There's kids running around outside. There's Christmas carols. There's um, adult beverages. Hear those adult beverages? Hang on. Hmm. So anyway, that's the context for today's podcast. Also, I think I'm changing the um, the tag or the uh, what would you call it the the theme of this podcast. I don't think it's going to be the intersection of markets, trading, and life anymore. I think it's going to be the intersection of markets, money, and life. And here's why. We talk a lot about trading in the Lund Loop. We talk about it in the Discord during the week. I talk about it in the daily updates, Monday through Thursday. I talk about it in the market strategy video. And I talk about it in the Deconstructing the Trade videos. And I've talked about it in the podcast as well. But I want to be able to talk about broader topics related to money. In fact, that's something I'm going to do in, in the second part of the podcast. So I think we're going to change it to the intersection of markets, money, and life. And money can include trading. We'll still talk about trading concepts from time to time, but I want to, I just want a little bit more leeway. So, all right. Uh, okay. So much on my, so much going through my head right now. I don't know where to start. I'll start with this. I grew up a very, very judgmental person. It's a direct result of my mom. My mom was so judgmental. She had a judgment, not an opinion, a judgment on everything, on things that you would just be like, why do you, you know, for example, she would see Hillary Clinton come on TV. She'd be, oh, there's that Hillary Clinton. I mean, like, yeah. And, well, I just, she's just looking at her up there talking and doing stuff, you know. And she would say that about all sorts of people. Didn't matter if it was, you know, didn't have to be a political person, could be anybody. Uh, I, here's, here, I'll give you an example. My sister's middle name is Michelle. My dad wanted it to be Elizabeth. This is back in 70, 1970, when my, mom was pregnant with my sister, but my mom didn't want Elizabeth. You know why? You don't like Elizabeth Montgomery. <laughs> Elizabeth Montgomery, who played uh, Samantha on Bewitch. My mom didn't like her. I, why would you have an opinion on Elizabeth Montgomery in 1970? It's not like, you know, no stars were not political back then. It wasn't like Elizabeth Montgomery was tweeting out stuff that my mom didn't agree with. She didn't know anything about Elizabeth Montgomery. I just don't like her. 
So my sister's middle name was not Elizabeth. It was Michelle. All right, whatever. So I inherited the judgmental gene from my mom. Now, somewhere along the way, I put my own spin on it, 100%, 100%. And I think the spin I put on it was, it was informed by my insecurity, right? Um, insecurity about being a skinny kid, insecurity about I don't know what, but my insecurities, my nervousness, my ADHD as a kid. So by being judgmental and by being able to really box people in and um, kind of wrap them up what they were about in my mind very quickly was, it was both a defense mechanism and it was a control mechanism, right? I would meet someone, I would see someone, I would see someone doing something and I'd immediately go, they're this, right? And usually nine times out of 10, the this that I put them into was, um, you know, in my mind, lower than me. Right, I was better than them. So then it was a, a control thing, a power and an empowerment thing. So this is a long preamble to just tell you that I've worked hard over the last, I don't know, 25 years to be less judgmental. And I think my baseline is I am less ju less judgmental about people, although sometimes I have to really be mindful about it and go, eh, you're kind of being a judgmental a-hole right here. So my my proclivity to judge people has been put to the test. It's been such a test the last two weeks, and here's why. <laughs> First of all, I went to uh, Comic-Con with my daughter, L.A. Comic-Con, right? Second of all, I'm at Disneyland right now. And those two events, places... They are just rife with people that are that are born to be judged. <laughs> it's so hard to not judge them. Uh, let's start with Comic-Con. Now, look, when I was a kid, I'll admit it, I played Dungeons & Dragons for a little bit, for a couple years. I was a casual Dungeons & Dragons player. We had fun. It was cool. But Dungeons and Dragons back then was a analog game. It was a physical game. You had dice, you had a board, you had a, you know, dungeon master guide. That's it, right? And so all of the fantasy and all of the excitement of that game was in your head, your imagination. And it stayed in your imagination pretty much where it should have. At some point along the line in the last 30, 40 years, people have been able to manifest all that stuff that should be in the world of fantasy into the real world in the form of movies and costumes and TV shows and groups and whatever. So you go to LA Comic-Con and it is a nerd fest. It is a dork fest. And some of these people there, I just, it, it's like you see the guy in the Punisher outfit. And I mean, he has done his best to make this outfit 100% legit. And he's got the fake muscles and he's got the weapons and he's got the logos and everything. And he's walking around with a big plate of nachos. Right? It just, there's a disconnect there. When you pull into the, uh, the parking structure for Comic-Con, it's like, it's like a tailgate 
scene for a college uh, football game, except it's people pulling out bins and bags full of their costumes. And they're sitting there in the, the garage and they're prepping their costumes. And it's just so strange, you know, to see a wizard drink Mountain Dew and eat uh, chicken fingers. It's not a world that I understand. It's when you when you pull all of the things out of the world, all the things that should be in your your brain or maybe like on the TV screen, and you try to embody them in the real world, it's just so strange to me. I mean, now my daughter went as uh, Goro Majima, which is a uh, anime. A manga character, apparently a uh, a yakuza character, but it's still a character that's somewhat in the realm of the real world. Um, but some of these characters are just crazy, and so I went there with her because she loves this stuff and she's a great kid. And I wanted, you know, we, this is our third year there. The first year we went, she was fully overwhelmed. This is the first time she'd ever been to a big co- uh, conference like this. Um, she didn't know what to expect. We were only there for a few hours and I think that was all she could handle. Last year we went, she a little bit more acclimated to it. Although there was some COVID stuff going on, got a little bit more comfortable this year. She was ready to go this year. She got her costume on point. She was ready to meet friends there. She wanted to take pictures with different, uh, other people that are in their, their costumes and so we've got it down now. So we get the VIP tickets so we don't have to stand in line with a bunch of dorks for two hours. Um, we get access to what they call a VIP area. And it's it's basically like a raised area over the main stage where they have different um, uh, panels and different presenters during the course of the day. In fact, one of them was William Shatner. I showed my – or I said to my daughter, I go, you know, William Shatner's going to be here. She's like, Who? I said, William Shatner, you know, TJ uh, Hooker. She's like, no. So I showed her his picture. I, sh- I showed her him his picture. And uh, she's like, no. Nah. And I'm like, I know. I'll show her the picture of him and Spock back in the day. She's like, yeah, I never really watched Star Trek. I'm like, I didn't either, but I know who t- <laughs> the original James T. Kirk is. So anyway, so we go, we get there early. We walk around, walk around, ro- walk around. And... I'm thinking to myself, this will probably go the way it did the last couple of years. We'll be there for two, three hours. She'll start running out of steam. We'll go back to the hotel at one. Um, then I can run out, hit some bookstores. My favorite Trappist uh, pub is up in that area. So we we walk around, walk around. She um, meets some friends. Great. You know, I'm going to go hang out with some friends. I said, awesome. I'll go to the VIP area, do some work, do some writing. I go there for about an hour. She comes back and says, uh, yeah, my friends went to Denny's across the street. Let's get something to eat. I'm thinking, great. It's like 1, 1.30. We'll eat. Maybe we'll come back, walk the convention floor again, and then she'll be ready to go. So we come back. We watch the, walk the convention floor for about an hour and a half. She goes, all right. And I'm like, here we go. We're leaving. Let's go back to the VIP area. All right. So we go back to the VIP area. And she's sitting there playing on her phone. 
in the VIP area. And all I can think in my head is, why are you sitting here playing on your phone at Comic-Con? We can just be doing this back at the hotel with your mom and your brother. But I didn't say anything. I like holding my tongue. And as we're doing this, they're having different panelists come up. They had the guys from uh, SpongeBob, uh, I think uh, Bob Kenny or whatever, you know, that do the voices, which is kind of cool. They had LeVar Burton up there for uh, about a half an hour. I feel so bad for LeVar Burton. I mean, this guy was in one of the most monumental, transformative TV shows in the history of television, Roots. And now all everyone remembers him for is uh, data or data on um, one of the Star Treks. I mean, it was like these guys, you know, they have questions for Mr. Burton. And it's like, uh, yes, um, were you able to see through your uh, special uh, Aluma visor that you wore? (laughs) And he's super, he's super polite and he's answering all these questions. But you know, inside he's like, you know, (laughs) I play Kunta Kinte. You know that, right? So we're in the VIP room for a little bit. And then she's like, okay. And I'm like, here we go. We're leaving. Let's go back on the floor again. So we go back on the floor and she's walking up and down the aisles and, oh, let's walk over here. And we just seem to be ambling. We're walking past the same areas again and again. And it keeps going on. And she keeps walking. And I keep waiting for her to, to say, okay, I'm ready to go. And now it's like 2.30, 3 o'clock. And every single you know, strand or fiber in me wants to yell out, what are we doing here? What is the plan? We've walked by this booth four times now. What are we doing here? But I'm trying to keep a lid on it. I'm trying to be, you know, mindful. I'm trying to be non-judgmental. I'm trying not to be selfish. And then I realized, oh, I get it. This is like when you tell your preteen or your teen the first time that you can stay up as late as you want tonight. And they're sitting there on the couch and you can see they're kind of fading and they're like falling asleep and they, and, and they, they wake themselves up, you know? And after they do that a couple of times, you say, hey, why don't you go to bed? They go, no, no, no. Because they just want to stay up because they're excited. They're trying to see what, you know, what this experience is like. Uh, and that's what she was doing. She just wanted to keep seeing what would happen around the next corner. Uh, would she run into a new character? And I just, I, I thought to myself, you fucking a-hole. Uh, this is her nirvana. She loves doing this. I mean, it, it, if they had a convention that combined rare books, drumming, and porn, right? That would be my thing. I'd never want to leave there. So why would she want to leave here? So I, okay, cool. I just pushed it all down in. And uh, we finally left at 4.30. So no bookstore run, no... um no uh, Trappist pub, but that's okay because it was her day. Now we're at Disneyland and same sort of deal here at Disneyland. Like I was born and raised just literally a few minutes from Disneyland. We used to go here once a year. I liked it, but even as a kid, when we were done, we were done. And there are so many people here that are just, they're crazy Disney-holics. Um, uh, Look, while I'm on a judgmental run, I, I might as well get the whole thing out of out of the way. So <laughs> this morning, I, I got up early, uh, ran out to Starbucks to get some tea. Usually when I get my tea at Starbucks, I'm going through the drive-thru. So I don't go inside. Uh, the, the Starbucks I came across here in Anaheim didn't have a drive-thru. And so I had to go inside. And there were like 30 people in front of me. 
And there are people from all over the country, tourists from all over. Starbucks is the devil. I sat there and watched 30 people ahead of me. Almost every single one of them bought some mega frappa sugar chino thing and then some crappy chocolate croissant. All these people had their Starbucks, uh, you know, apps, their cards, their discount, you know, their, 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 uh, like coffee mugs that you can scan the bottoms. You get refills of, of liquid sugar. By the way, all these people, 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight easily. I mean, it was like an insulin dealer's wet dream in there. So that's number one. Then you go into Disneyland and the tonnage there is just ridiculous. Like they say that if you look at pictures of Disneyland from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you won't see any fat people. You go there now, it's crazy, right? So you've got these people that are, um, they're, they're crazy Disney fanatics. Um, they're sucking down their, their sugar drinks and their, their knees and their ankles and their, their hips are just buckling. I know I'm an a-hole. I'm sorry. I just, I'm, I, this is what I have to do, right? I have to purge my judgmentalness so that I can be a normal person most, most of the time. And then I'm going to, now I'm going to go really dark on my judgment. This, this is, this is so bad. So we go to the Pirates of the Caribbean and we get, you know, we wait in line. It's like 30 minutes and we get inside the building. Now, if you're familiar with the Pirates of the Caribbean, the way it works is as you walk in the building, all the boats that are coming off of the ride, there's like a little, um, yeah, it's like a river, you know, a flowway, a river or something. It's, it's like a U-turn where all the boats float past you, right? So you can see all the people coming off of the uh, ride. And so I'm sitting there and we're moving forward and this boat comes around the corner and I see this older lady in the front of the boat kind of slumped over next to her husband, next to what looks like their adult son. And she's like, huh? and then she's putting her head up like, like she just went through the ringer and then she puts her head down. Oh, and I just got this really bad feeling. I'm like, oh no, oh no. So the boats come around, the boats come around. We start going up to the front. We get literally to where we're the next people on the boat. And then all of a sudden I realize this lady is not getting out of the boat and they're calling people over. And then the next thing you know, there's Disney medics. And the thing is she's right there next to the dock. And I'm just saying, just pick her up, just pick her up, just get her onto the dock. And then we can all continue to go. Of course they can't. They can't pick her up because they don't know what's wrong with her. She could be having a heart attack. She could be passing out. She could have food poisoning. Um, you know, they don't want the liability. And also you want to preserve human life. But I just, I kept thinking to myself, I, I was just so angry at this lady. I'm just like, did, did, you couldn't just wait one more boatload. So we're all waiting there. And uh, sure enough, um, they closed the ride. Uh, they cleared her boat out and I thought they're going to lift her off into the little wheelchair and wheel her out. But no, they cleared the boat out so she could lay down in the boat and we couldn't go on the ride. So anyway, uh, like I said, sometimes you got to purge this judgmental part, uh, so that I can go back to being a normal person. Um, 
Is this the Lun Loop? As I mentioned, I'm on vacation and I'm trying to wing this podcast. And my winging just got even more difficult because they kicked me out of the business center. Apparently, there is a electrical issue in the business center, so they had to shut it down. So now I'm sitting here on a landing on one of the floors right in front of the elevators. So you're probably going to hear people walking by. The gym is right at the end of this hallway. You're also going to hear elevators ding. That should be fun. Anyway, in the spirit of the new podcast direction, the intersection of markets, money, and life, I thought what I'd do is read speak, which is a combination of reading and speaking, a quick chapter in one of my favorite books. I've got it right in front of me. It's called The 50 Best and Worst Business Deals of All Time. And like the title suggests, it's a breakdown of 50 deals throughout history, some of which worked out well, some of which didn't work out so well, some of which you may know about, but a lot which you probably don't. I didn't know about most of them when I first got this book. And I'm going to read, speak a chapter related to something that you might be surprised about because I'm not the person to go to for sports stuff. I'm not a big sports fan. But ever since I first read this story, I was really fascinated by it. And it is the ABA's financial settlement with the spirits of St. Louis, and that is spirits with an S. This happened in 1976. And the background is that People know the NBA, but what they may not know is that there was once an upstart league called the ABA, the American Basketball Association. And what they probably don't know is that the NBA was kind of boring back in the day. In fact, it didn't have a big fan base. It didn't get really good ratings. In fact, a lot of the teams played to half-empty arenas. Oftentimes, they would broadcast the shows on delay, and nobody even cared that they were on a delay. So this upstart league, the American Basketball Association, started with the idea of let's throw some pizzazz into this game. Let's make it exciting. And one of their premier players was Julius Irving, Dr. J. He was the first guy to really bring some flash into the game. And it showed because fans started packing the ABA arenas and they started really getting into the players. At some point, the NBA said, well, it's, what is it, uh, better to join them than to beat them or wh whatever the saying is. I don't know. I'm on a landing here in a, in a hotel. They decided, you know what, let's, instead of trying to compete with the ABA, let's make a deal and bring some of this excitement into our league. Let's m make a merger. But they didn't want all seven teams because three of the teams, to be fair, were just loser teams. They wanted the four best teams in the ABA. They wanted the Denver Nuggets, the Indiana Pacers, the New York Nets, and the San Antonio Spurs. And who they didn't want were the Kentucky Colonels, the Virginia Squires, and the Spirits of St. Louis. All right, so it seems like a good deal. But here's the rub. According to the charter of the ABA, it was all or nothing, meaning those four Great teams could not merge with the NBA and leave the other three behind. So what ended up happening was the NBA made a deal with those four teams, but those four teams were required to have a pro rata responsibility for paying off the other three teams that weren't going to join the NBA. Now, for the Virginia Squires, that wasn't 
a problem because the team was so bad, the attendance was so low, people were so uninterested that the owners actually closed down the franchise about uh, three or four weeks before the merger deal was concluded. So no, no, no truck with the Virginia Squires. The Kentucky Colonels, a little bit different, but they were bought out easily with a $3 million payment. And that just left the St. Louis Spirits with an S. Now, the St. Louis franchise was owned by two brothers, Dan and Ozzie Silna. Also, co-owner, their attorney, Donald Shupak. Now, Shupak was a really savvy guy, and he was very strategic. He knew that in order to complete this merger, the NBA owners would have to go through a series of negotiations, first with each individual team, then they'd have to deal with the players union, then they'd have to deal with antitrust issues. And he waited until all those things played out and they were just so exhausted. And then he put his demands out. He said, I want $2.2 million in cash, which they said, sure. And then he said, I want one seventh of each of the new NBA teams network television revenue. So those four ABA teams that were going into the NBA, he wanted one-seventh of each of their television revenue. And he added a kicker. He wanted it in perpetuity. Now, as Donnie Walsh, the Indiana Pacers president, once said, perpetuity is a long time. How long? Well, it was long enough for Julius Irving to make a massive impact on TV ratings. It was long enough for Larry Bird and Magic Johnson to create the most storied rivalry ever, which boosted ratings. It was long enough for Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls to dominate the public consciousness like no other sports team, which, in addition, boosted ratings. All right, so how much did it boost ratings? Well, you can tell by the revenue deals that the new NBA was offered. In 1978, they had a deal for $74 million for four years. In 1990, that jumped to $601 million for four years, and then to $2.4 billion for six years in 2002. Then we add cable into the mix. In 2002, cable brought in another $2.3 billion. So there was a total package of $4.6 billion for six years. In 1981, the first year of earnings eligibility, the Silnas made $500,000. In 2000, their cut was up to $10 million. And in 2011, they got $17.5 million. Now, obviously, the NBA was not hip to this. They wanted to buy the Silnas out, and they kept offering to buy them out, and they kept offering to buy them out, and they would not sell. By 2014, the NBA had enough. The league was negotiating a $24 billion nine-year broadcasting deal. And so they made a massive offer to the Silnas. They gave them $500 million for a buyout settlement. And the Silnas took it. So over the course of 1976 to 2014, the Silnas made $800 million off of a basketball franchise that didn't exist. 